Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. And this is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan Read the Paper. It's Sunday, June 21st, 2020. Father's Day. Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to you. Thank you very much. And uh, happy birthday. Happy birthday to a cup coming tomorrow to Michael. Right. One of, uh, my brother Michael uh, will be 60-something. I don't want to give it away on June 22nd. Happy birthday, Mike. And uh, later in the week... He, he must be your older brother. Michael? Yeah, he must be. <laughs> if he's turning 60-something. Not if you listen to him. Uh, anyway, he's and uh, happy birthday yeah. to my mom, Vivian yes. Granger, who will be turning 95. Even older than Michael. Yes. 95. You know, I can't wait till the mom. big one comes. Uh, then we'll have a big celebration. Mother's birthday is Thursday, huh? Right. Okay. Right. And so, happy Father's Day to you. Yes, thank you. And it uh, makes me think of uh, our fathers. Yes. And uh, all the adventures over the years. What stands out in your memory? Well, th- th- well, we're going to talk about the uh, Belmont later. So, it's a horse racing day, of course. That uh, I had a lot of experiences involving horse racing with my dad, so that uh, comes to mind. You know, it's funny. Um, every year, uh, for the last X years before my dad passed, I would call him, and uh, right before the Derby, the Preakness, or the Belmont. I know moments before, and, and we'd get his pick, get yeah. his pick, and I'd put in my pick. And the funny thing is, we even, my mother would even make a pick, which is weird because. Years ago, my mother was very much against this sort of thing, and it uh, takes us back to 1978 when Alador had a great rivalry with Affirmed, and they had the greatest Belmont of all time. They two faced off, and I remember just as the race was about to start, possibly the most famous race in the 20th century, my mother turned on the vacuum cleaner, and, <laughs> and you couldn't see or hear the race. And I coolly said to my mother, that's okay, this will happen again 75 years from now, chances are. And uh, somehow we got the vacuum off. But... Uh, <laughs> More recently, the last 20 years or so, uh, my mother sort of was broken down. And they would each have their picks and I'd have my pick. And uh, sometimes we were even right. But no matter whether we were right or not, I'd call my dad after the race and he would explain to me why things happened the way they happened because the five horse was supposed to move at this point. He didn't make a move. So the, the one horse had to go on the outside and that the four horse had to, to stay on the rail. And uh, it was all clear to me. He explained it to me. So I understood it in a deeper level. Uh, so I, I miss going to the track and listening to my dad talk about racing. Yeah. And, uh, I was thinking about, uh, you know, we've been thinking about all these food businesses and I was thinking about my old food business, the cranberry food sampler Yeah, and, uh, how my father, uh, really helped us renovate that building. That was probably the most fun I had with my father was well, uh, worth, literally, you know, working to renovate that building uh, yes. physically. He he was uh, an engineer, and uh, he was you know he was a pretty smart guy, Listen. and he he knew how or thought he knew how to fix most things. Yes, and uh, oh, but see, but that but that's a bigger truth is that you, it's hard to see your parents um, in a full. In their fullness. And that one of the ways to do it is to experience something with them doing what they're interested in doing, doing what they do well, doing sometimes what they do professionally. And that's, that opens up a new light, a new insight into who they are and you relate to them a different way. And that was your experience with your father. Absolutely. But I, I think that's true of all relationships. Yeah. Working together yeah. uh, forms a bond mm-hmm. in a way that uh, no co- 
cocktail party chatter ever could. Well, yeah. Uh, so plus, um, he knew what he was talking about. Yeah. That, that, that's, you know, he didn't always. No, no, no. But no. he could figure it out. No, no. Well, <laughs> well, well, he much more likely to know what he's talking about then than sitting around the dinner table talking about politics. And that, that, that's that's gotcha. What I'm yeah, gotcha. So, uh, happy Father's Day. And yeah. A lot of uh, good memories there. Yeah. All right. So we've been uh, busy as always. Uh, and, you know, we haven't talked recently about the kind of things we've been seeing uh, on the screen. And the truth is, it doesn't mean we don't see anything, but we don't talk about it unless it's worth talking about. So uh, we just pass. Well, I don't even it. know if it's that. I yeah. mean, I'm a little reluctant because that's all there is yeah. in the news. Like uh, what to watch on TV or but what to stream, still, you know, how, how to fill your time. But when so you I see feel like we're just being redundant. When you see something that's worth seeing, I mean, yeah, the Times has an article every day now with three recommendations. And what we've learned from bitter experiences, the recommendations usually don't pan out. It's just some, <laughs> something to write about. But, but we did something uh, which was interesting. It was actually it was Grander's idea. And by total coincidence, after we followed through on it, the Times suggested people follow through on this. Uh, two days yeah. later. And that was to take a look at the Criterion Collection, which is in essence a classic movie channel, uh, which uh, costs $100 a year, but gives you, uh, makes it available on a two-week free trial basis. And what the Times recommended uh, we do two days after we did it was you sign up for the Criterion Collection, and that gives you an opportunity in particular to see a documentary called Company Original Cast Album. And what Company Original Cast Album is, as you well know, but I'll tell our listeners, is a documentary by Penna Baker, B.B. Penna Baker, who famously made the Dylan documentaries, about the making of the cast album of the Stephen Sondheim's Broadway Musical Company. Um, and uh, it was uh, fascinating. It was mm -hmm. fascinating. It was made in uh, 1970. And here's something I didn't know, so I'll pass it on to you before I let you chime in on what you thought of it. It turns out, according to the Pennebaker's website, that it was a huge hit at the 1970 New York Film Festival, so much so that a police riot squad had to be summoned to quell outraged turnaways who could not get into uh, the documentary screening. Huh. Uh, and then it fell into all kinds of legal uh, tangles, and it hasn't been available for years and years. And now it is. So uh, what did you think? Yes, it was very interesting, and uh, it was great to uh, see the different characters, like Elaine Stritch, uh, you know, character is the perfect word for her, right? and uh, see her process, uh, and uh, to see the personalities, see, you know, watch Sondheim, watching uh, the the performers, etc., and occasionally rolling his eyes and offering various right. comments, so uh, that was uh, uh, Definitely worth seeing. Yeah, I mean, there's such, you had to be impressed, they're such perfectionists. And of course, they're skilled in their craft. So they could listen to a take, or they could listen, uh, the guy who's the uh, head producer of the album or Sondheim himself will listen to a take that you think is fantastic as you watch them perform it. And they'll say, all right, well, drag here or drag there. Or Sondheim pulls aside a singer and says, you know, you know, da -da 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 about 30 seconds in, you sang uh, an F sharp instead of an A. And the person says, oh, yeah, 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 I did that. And they go to, and, and they have to do it again. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, I mean, he's very nice about it. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and eventually the most dramatic exchanges have to do with Elaine Stritch because it takes 18 and a half hours that day. And she's on at three in the morning and she's out of gas. 
and she's doing takes and you can see Sondheim agonizing in the background, shaking his head after the first two bars of the music. It's another lost cause. And they finally put her over and she does it a few days later, um, triumphantly. But um, it's so it's so demanding that these people have to do it perfectly and they'll do it. And they say, that was really great. Let's do it again. They'll do eight takes. Yeah. Uh, and you're rooting for them because these are complicated songs. A lot of them sung very, very quickly. Right. right? But yeah, but it does, uh, you get an appreciation for what's going on here, which is, you know, a lot more technical than the just singing along we do to the radio. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, and, uh, it's crazy. Yeah. Well, 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 another reason that this has come up, um, uh, gotten more publicity lately, is not just that the uh, Criterion Collection has been advertising it. But because uh, there's been a parody that's been out for a few months um, called Co-op. And that was done by uh, John Mulaney uh, and the comedian, the comedian that we've been yes. enjoying yes. recently. And, and what it is, is it's based on a close read of the uh, company original cast album documentary. And they make up their own musical called Co-op and they have the performers sing Sondheim-like songs and uh, uh, adopt characters that are similar to those who are singing the songs in the Sondheim documentary and they're goofing on it a little bit and and uh well they're goofing on it totally Daniel that's yes. what a parody is yeah you're right they're goofing okay. on it totally but here's what I don't understand yeah how did they even know this documentary well enough to do that well you could get a copy of it if you worked hard I know but it's just crazy that uh they spent a lot of time with it a lot of time well they have real people in it. They have Renee Goldsberry, who is in Hamilton, and uh, they have Richard Kind, who does a, a lot of Sondheim shows himself. They have real people. Yes, and they're they real singers. Real people in it. And the funny thing is, they have real songs that they wrote. They actually wrote songs themselves. And they uh, there was an interview with Sondheim, and Sondheim uh, saw the, the parody, and Sondheim was asked, "What do you think of their songs?" And Sondheim was very diplomatic. Here's what he said. He said, I would have to listen again. The lyrics are crowded. <laughs> uh, um, it was it was fun to watch. Yeah. It was only 20 minutes. So, but it was, yeah. So it was a fun double feature for us because well, it, we watched the documentary yeah. and there, you know, right away before we forgot everything we saw, yeah. we watched the parody. Yeah. And uh, so that was fun. And we kind of yeah. got the jokes. Well, you know, you can do it. I should mention that the the, the the company, original cast album, was only 50 minutes long, 52 minutes long. So you can watch them consecutively, 50 minutes and then 20 minutes. Yeah. Uh, so it's doable. Yeah. So anyway, so we saw that. Well, it must be doable, Dan. We did it. We did it. Well, we do and So things. you can go we to the Criterion collection. collection to see the documentary, right. to see the, the parody co-op yes. is on Netflix. Netflix, they have a segment called Documentary Now. It's a whole, uh, you know, subfolder. And Netflix. And those are all parodies. Yes. Right. Okay. So maybe we need to go back to that as well. Yeah. Well, then the, then the question becomes, so we've got this two-week trial on Criterion Collection. And are we going to keep it or aren't we? Yes, we've got to make the most of it. Exactly. At the moment, we've got to make so our dollars count. So what will count. we watch so, tonight? So, so then uh, a few nights later, we saw a Hitchcock movie called The Lady Vanishes, which is a classic movie. Um one of the last movies Hitchcock made in, in Great Britain before he came to the U.S. And it stars uh, uh, Margaret Lockwood named May Whitty and Michael Redgrave. Now, this movie is so old. It's 1938 uh, that Michael Redgrave, who's Vanessa Redgrave's father, is a young man in this movie. This right. This is a long time ago. Right. And 
it was an odd film, but it was it was good. I think I I probably got into it a little more than you did because it's it's an odd tone more than other Hitchcock movies. Yeah, it really and had comical Gr- overtones. And Granger and Nico, serious. they loved the it. kids loved it. They loved it. So, um, and it it. it it, it, it's for a movie that's 82 years old, which is shocking to even use those numbers. 82 years old, because as I was saying before, when we were growing up, no one would go back and say, Let's watch an 80 year old movie. Because right. you didn't have 80 year old movies. <laughs> right. I mean, if you were watching an old movie when we were growing up, it was 40 years old. So this is 82 years old. I mean, it's just amazing. Um, uh, and it was, uh, it was good. It was quite good. Um, but then. So it's, it's kind of a, a spy thriller. Yeah. Mystery thing. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of sensitive. You know, it's a little bit like an incomplete sentence in that what happens is the lady vanishes is, is, a, is something akin to a kidnapping, possibly. That's that's the mystery. Yeah, and, but it's, it's also, you know, there's all this intrigue on the train, so right. it's got a little bit of Orient Express right. uh, in it. Um, and there are all these people who are kind of duplicitous. But the, the unspoken thing about it is the enemy, and it's sort of a almost a wartime-like enemy sense of it, but they don't name the enemy and uh, the villains, the bad guys. It's yeah. 1938. You're on, they're on the verge. Uh, the world is on the verge of possibly fighting Nazi Germany. But apparently it's impolitic in a, in a movie at this time in Great Britain to say the words Nazi Germany and cast them as the aggressors and terrible force that has to be fought. They're not at that point yet. So you have this mystery thing. What's going on? Some unknown force is dealing with these people in a bad way. So it's 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 kind of odd in that way. Yes, and, <laughs> and uh, well, it's just completely over the top. And right. people have you know Tom Cruise esque skills in terms of right. jumping out of windows and trains, you know, changing trains by hanging on the uh, outside. Even, even and, the old ladies. Yes, even the old ladies. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, uh, I should so. tell you one other thing. There was this two this this two guys who was sort of somewhat comic relief uh, characters are named Caldecott and charters uh, who were like British semi-upper crust to observing things on the scene who eventually get thrown into the action but until then they're comic relief it turns out they were so popular when this movie was made that they were inserted in other movies completely unrelated <laughs> to this after just to do wow. their, their comic bit okay so then and then again last night we invested uh, or invested we further took advantage of our Criterion collection by looking at an independent movie which Granger was able to find called The Day Trippers which is a movie made in 1997, uh, directed by Greg Matola. Uh, and it's a real independent type cast. At least these were independent. You know, Parker Posey was at that time the queen of the independent actresses. And there are other people starting their careers. You had Hope Davis, you had Stanley Tucci, you had Liev Schreiber. Uh, you also had Ann Mira. Uh, not exactly starting her not, career. Not starting a career, but not a big movie career. I don't think she made that many films, honestly. But she only made more than she you was realize. a central character in the movie. So that the premise, I think we can say the premise of the movie was just uh, comic, and the movie is is, is comic to a large degree. Uh, is that uh, a woman who's who's close to her mother and her sister, and it's around Thanksgiving time, so people in the same area stumbles across a note uh, that appears to be possibly uh, a romantic note written to her husband by another person, and uh, in what's the most improbable. Uh, aspect of the film but sets up the film uh she decides to share it with her mother to get her view on it and the next thing you know the whole family is loading into the station wagon and driving from deer park into the city to confront her husband at his workstation and 
hijinks ensue. Exactly right. You know, That's I mean, a perfect summary. Um, and uh, so it is. It's uh, you know, it's uh, it's great family interaction, uh, character interaction. Um, it's just amazing. And of course, you're going to tell everybody the film was made in like 14 days, 17 days yeah, or yeah, something was, for $50,000 right. and uh, well worth watching. Yeah. Really a, a good little film. Yeah, it's okay. But it's, it's not like Granger did any crazy research well, to find it. It was just one of the ones that pops up on the suggestions when you, you know. But he barely did that. So here's the question to you. I yeah. mean, uh, this is, here's the dollar and cents question. They always come to your doorstep. Do you stick with the Criterion Collection because... You're only going to get movies like this on the Criterion Collection. In other words, the, the standard choices that appear on Netflix and Amazon are the ones with bigger budgets and bigger promotion, some a little less so than others. But even so, this kind of movie is not going to be in the normal offerings that you see. Uh, so what Listen, do you think? Well, this is what I think. If you and Granger worked this hard to find good movies because you had a free offer for two weeks, yeah. once you've laid down... A hundred bucks. Yeah. You're going to really uh, be looking to find, you're going to find some serious gems and you're not going to give up till you do. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I don't think it's I I don't think it's a bad investment, but I mean, you know, I mean, there are a zillion trillion things to be watching on Netflix. Yeah. So I, I don't know. But yeah, you shouldn't. You know, yeah. Well, bad look, mouth Netflix. But, but you know, something you got to take the leap. You got to say, I don't know if this is a short winner. Maybe this movie's good. Maybe it's not. Let's take a chance. And uh, yeah, because you can never tell by the summary. Right. I mean, it doesn't matter what it's about. Right. And the stuff that, yeah. that, that you that's recommended in the newspaper, frankly, is. Is not always. Oh, I don't trust any of them anymore. And it's not very challenging. They're they're just uh, killing themselves to come up with ideas, and they don't uh, really care. But we also watched another movie called The Wasp Network. That's we did, yes. And And you're not bringing it up because uh, you uh, you didn't like that movie. No, I didn't think it was very good. It wasn't terrible. Right, and uh, so that was just released. It's brand new movie, and uh, it's really about uh, um, Cuban spies. Right. In the U.S. And, uh, you know, just kind of uh, telling a story based on true events right. and uh, trying, you know, kind of telling a story of uh, people, relationships and international uh, right. kind of relationships from a variety of points right. of view. But in the end, it wasn't uh, terribly compelling no. uh, one way or the other. Uh, so uh, that was a another, disappointment. It's another example. It's a big article in the Times, big recommendation from the Times. And it was like uh, NCIS. Critics pick. Yeah. Critics it, pick. It, it, but it didn't measure up to any of the other things we're talking about. Not even close. Yeah. I mean, it was one of those things that, uh, you know, it's an interesting subject matter because right. it, uh, right. the Cuba aspect. And, uh, you know, thinking about Cuba, you know, what is the future of Cuba? Cuba opening up to tourism. And, of course, you know, we're old enough to remember a lot of uh, – Cuban-American interaction over the years. So it seems like an interesting subject. Uh, so it seems like uh, Times is going to say, yeah, this is a new way of looking at something. Right. Boom. Right. And uh, yeah, it seems to, to the extent it raises a serious political question, the question really is, uh, you know, should the U.S. be allowing uh, foreign governments, namely Cuba, to operate spy rings in the U.S. to protect their interests? And let me cut to the chase. The answer to that is no. Uh, they shouldn't. They don't. And that's what happened in the movie. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, but if you're interested in that, uh, it's Wasp Network. Right. So not what you would think. 
No. I thought it was a bunch of uh, ladies from the DAR having a tea party or something. (laughs) That's why we watched it. Uh, Okay, so the Belmont um, was yesterday. I mentioned the Belmont last week. I had lost track of the fact that it was coming up so soon. I knew it was going to be the first race, and indeed, in the Triple Crown, indeed it was. I knew that it was going to be a mile and eighth instead of a mile and a half. And as you yourself pointed out, then it's not really the Belmont, is it? No. Uh, Which is a fair point. Um, But at least it was something to watch on TV. Well, let me go to that in a second. Oh, really? Why? What what were we going to say? Nothing. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you why I think there's something to that. Let me just go back to the Belmont. First of all, the Belmont was boring. Honestly. It It was a terrible race. Uh, You had an overwhelming favorite. Uh, and uh, Tis the Law and uh, Fortify Favorite. No other horse challenged them. It wasn't a great field. Uh, you don't have, usually the Triple Crowns open with the uh, Kentucky Derby with 20 horses. is only at 10 horses. Uh, there was no one in the stands. Doesn't help. Uh, not much going on. But, but, to take your point, something to watch. Horse racing. The race before the Belmont which you got to see because the timing was it happened to be available at the beginning of the hour. It was called the Jiper Stakes, and that was a great race. Mm-hmm. And there was a horse, uh, there is a horse named Oleksandra, who is a filly, a female horse, six-year-old horse, who is running in this group of uh, male horses, uh, all mature, six, seven years old in life. And yet the filly was highly regarded, so much so she was a slight favorite, but the word on her was that she comes from way behind. And sure enough, in this race, this filly, Alexandra, is last the whole race. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, with 15, 20 seconds to go, boom. Mm-hmm. And she comes flying at the rest of the field and wins by a nose. Mm-hmm. Right? And her trainer says she's just so much fun to watch. She makes life very exciting. It's Neil Drysdale. And you're saying to yourself, you know, that was an exciting horse race. And wouldn't you think that this is an opportunity for horse racing to step to the fore Talk about something oh, to, to watch. Be more on TV? Yeah. I mean, especially because people are into gambling. It's the gambling mm-hmm. sport. Mm-hmm. You will recall that in the first 50 years mm-hmm. of the 20th century, the three most popular sports were baseball, boxing, and you guessed it, horse racing. It's not like there's no history there. You could have horse racing in a way that you apparently you're not going to have Major League Baseball or other sports. And you'd have to build up interest. I'm not talking about just to track $2 betters, but to build up interest in particular horses, in particular races. And yeah. There are high-profile races. Isn't this an opportunity for horse racing yeah. to, to do something? But, you know, horse racing, they seem, lately they seem more interested in, in like, uh, personal interest stories. Oh, well, but... Uh, more so than the horses. That killed, that killed that, the Belmont. Yeah. That killed the Belmont. Yeah. But the Jaipur yeah. wasn't infected by that. Right, right. That was a real horse But I know race. why that filly won. Why? Um, because, uh, let's face it, uh, well, I know why she runs the way she does. Why? Because, uh, when you're in a crowd with like six or seven guys, yeah. you don't want to be at, you know, at the front with all these guys sniffing your butt the whole, oh, uh, God, mile and an eighth or yeah, whatever it is. Really. So she picks her spots and comes up at the right moment, you know, right. it's, you know, it's a, a matter of delicacy. Yeah, really? All right. Tampa. But I do... I do enjoy watching things like the Belmont yeah. and uh, the Kentucky Derby uh, because I, I, like, I don't like the, the long, drawn-out personal interest stories right. uh, so much. Those are often very poorly done, um, and, but I do like all the little rituals, you know, uh, watching them wash down the horses, watching the horses 
What, isn't there a, a the paddock they, they in the paddock they parade they around parade paddock, yeah. a little bit and then i like when they you know come up to the gate with you know their with their entourage there's yeah. another horse next to them leading them right. i like interviewing all the different experts about uh what their pick is mm-hmm. and why and i like seeing what they wear because they uh, male or female, all those people seem to wear wackier stuff than normal commentators. And I do like the panning of the crowd and, uh, you know, seeing, you know, of course, in the Derby, you have the ladies with the hats and so forth. But, you know, it's it's often an interesting crowd to see, uh, especially the different gatherings for different horses, the mm-hmm. owners and, and so on and so forth. So I do enjoy all that pomp and circumstance. Uh, and it was too bad it didn't exist no, uh, for the Belmont. But uh, I, I guess an exciting race would be nice, too. Yeah, well, anyway, the Derby's in a couple of months, and uh, we'll see. We'll take it from there. Right, um, well, fortunately, we have plenty of mint ready for that. <laughs> yeah. The mint is growing like crazy this summer. I don't know what the deal is. Well, well I, mint often grows like crazy. I guess that's why yeah. the mint julep got invented. All right, so uh, another... Sign of the apocalypse. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what to say, but this is brought about apparently by COVID-19. There's an article in the Times about chatbots. Never know what that means, chatbots, but here's what it means in this article. Uh, Apparently, apparently, what you can now do is you can sign up for what's called a chatbot that you can talk to on a regular basis, and it will respond in a semi-human voice. Uh, in a way that you have a conversation that many people find comforting. So it's a computer buddy. It's a computer buddy. And it's not like it's new. I mean, there was that movie, right, that we didn't see. Her with Scarlett Johansson. Apparently all these bots don't really sound like Scarlett Johansson. No, no. But they look like Scarlett Johansson. (laughs) That's the important thing. Uh, No, the the deal is that the Scarlett Johansson uh, bot uh, in the movie was in an advanced version. It's the movie. So they kind of are a little futuristic there. They say they'll get to that point. It might take 10 years. But right now, you've got something short of Scarlett Johansson. Johansson? Yeah. I think it's, it's Johansson, Johansson? I think. I, don't, I should know. You said Johansson. I should know. It's something I Yo, should know. Johansson. Yeah. Uh, but in any event, um, and yet, and yet, in April, according to the Times, at the height of the coronavirus pandemic, half a million people downloaded a replica which is the company that makes the, the, app the, le- the leading chatbot and are paying $8 a month for the privilege of having a conversation with their own bot. And what's interesting about this to me is that uh, the, the bots get more sophisticated and benefit by input and computer learning, and they get better. It was invented by a woman named Eugenia Kaida, or at least developed. She a Russian woman came to the U.S., she lost a friend of hers when she shortly after she got to the U.S. She missed his voice, and she realized that uh, perhaps you could develop a chatbot that has a certain personality. She in fact included all all the texts that she had with this individual yeah, she in order to inform missed her, her friend. Yeah. So she wanted to invent a, a, a chatbot which had a certain personality, right. and uh, apparently the chatbots uh, do develop a certain rapport with the users based on the constant uses and the back and forth. Now, the chatbots can go wrong, and there are a couple of points here that I don't quite understand, but there are some things that chatbots don't discuss well. The chatbots apparently 
Don't give the right kind of advice when someone's thinking of suicide. I don't know how often that comes up. Uh, also, the chatbots uh, have made some racist remarks or something like that. Well, well, the problem is the chatbot's personality yeah. is based on all kinds of data right. that uh, has been, uh, I don't know, Uploaded into it, or right. that it. it's that it's been exposed to. Right. Exposed to. So it, it, it just it it really has developed that personality based on what it has read. Right. Okay. But it, so if it's reading, if it's inhaling um, things from a certain negative perspective, okay, it develops that perspective. Right. Okay. So you have to be very careful about uh, exactly how you're. Uh, training this bot to think. But the, the thing that's interesting is people do like it. Right. Okay. People have felt, uh, they have an example there of a guy who just, he doesn't really want to, at the end of a hard day, he doesn't really want to discuss his problems. He doesn't want to discuss his problems. He just wants to unload. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and he doesn't want to burden anybody. He doesn't want to unload all his troubles on his wife and uh, give her that burden as well. But he wants to do that. And by doing it to this bot, he does that pretty freely. He, okay. you know, uh, gets to, um, you know, unload. Yeah, it's therapeutic. Uh, except that the psychologists they talk to there say, yeah, but it's not, it doesn't really get you anywhere. Um, if you, uh, if the answers, it, you know, if uh, you're just talking to some person who's somebody, some bot, who's going to tell you what you want to hear, yeah. okay, that's still just like talking to yourself. It is, but okay? you know, but and it, it it's it, not. It, it doesn't take you anywhere. What's, what's interesting to me is people are getting something out of it, whether they should or they shouldn't, whether it's making them better people or not. What they say in this article is, despite its flaws, hundreds of thousands of people use Replica regularly. Sending about seventy messages a day, each, on average. Yeah, it's a thing. I understand it's a thing. May not be a good thing. Yeah. All right. Okay. Yeah. Um, but well, it's probably preferable to just rolling around thoughts in your head yeah. with no right. way to express them. I'm sure it is. Uh, I'm so sure it is. this this helps to that extent. Yeah. But another approach yeah. would be. The Nutcracker. Yeah, I didn't know what this is. You, you, you caught me. I didn't know what it is either. But uh, there's a, an article in the New York Times, uh, and the headline is, To-Go Cocktails Kick Bootleggers to the Curb. So you know that uh, many places have legalized um, to-go cocktails yeah. from bars. You know, you can... Uh, you know, grab a drink and go right out onto the street with it, okay? Right. Or um, even have it delivered uh, to your house or whatever. This is kind of a new thing. Not really, okay? And uh, the the subtitle here is Nutcracker Sellers Are Displaced by Restaurants and Bars Which Have Legal Cover. So that caught my eye because I said, what's a nutcracker? Well, a nutcracker is, in fact, a, you know, a bootleg cocktail. Okay, and people have been selling them uh, on the streets, especially you know in uh, New York, yeah. like Queens well, yeah. and Queens uh, comes to mind. Qu all right, so and other areas on the street, uh, on on the the street corner, corner wow. you know, from coolers. All right, so before COVID nineteen, all right, they they talked to this uh, one guy, Mister Faluke, 
And, uh, you know, they'd be on like street corners, summer crowds. Usually I can get $500 if I stand in one spot for 25 minutes. Wow. Okay. This year, all right, with public gatherings pretty much canceled, etc., he has gone like uh, entire three-day weekends making only 500 bucks. Really? Yeah. So for a couple of different reasons, people weren't out and about as much, right? But also he has tremendous, he and the other nutcracker sellers have tremendous competition because you have the bars and restaurants who are allowed, you know, legally allowed to do the same thing. Uh, Plus you have a lot of unemployed uh, people, bartenders, waitresses, and others who have also gotten into the nutcracker. Act. So he has both legal and illegal competition, uh, which has made it tough. Now he is really, he's got quite a thriving business. It even seems the way they describe it, that he has employees. He has guys on other street corners and he has, you know, drinks with, uh, um, you know, cute names and, uh, you know, a following, etc. quite well developed. And so do these other people, people, even the uh, other nutcracker, there are people selling illegally and uh, they're doing it through Instagram. Okay. Instagram is the medium for their menus and, uh, you know, uh, for them to be able to say where they're going to be or um, provide delivery, etc. through that. Um, so interesting to me that, uh, you know, the, these uh, guys, no question about it, this is illegal. Yeah. All right. You get fined for it, but it's usually the fine is less than 500 bucks. Um, and maybe a one-day stint in uh, confinement, uh, jail, I guess. Really? Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a risk you may take in that situation. Um, so, you know, it, this is causing, to some extent, Mr. Faluke and, and, and some others, uh, he's thinking of going corporate. He uh, claims to be, you know, um, he would like to distribute his uh, um, products uh, through a, you know, a major liquor company, if possible. But some of these other guys, a, uh, uh, including a Mr. Z that they quote, is saying, yeah, you know, it's it's getting too rough. Uh, I might have had enough of this. Huh. But that's what a nutcracker is. So um, next time uh, you're thirsty on the streets of New York and need a treat, there's a guy with a cooler. Well, okay. Uh, news to me. So here's something from Japan. Teen sues government to challenge screen time law. Okay, what does that mean? That means that the government of Kagawa Prefecture. Uh, prefecture. Prefecture, excuse me. On the island of Shikoku has moved to limit the amount of time young, pe- young, excuse me, the amount of time young people can spend playing video games on the internet. And All right, so some town in Japan yeah. made it illegal. It's the equivalent of a state. I mean, that's every mother's dream, right? Okay, you well, can't be on the right. computer anymore. No more games. It's against the it, law. It, it is every mother's dream. The limit yeah. is 60 minutes on a school night and an hour and a half on the weekends. Nothing I can do, sweetie. It's, it's the law. Exactly. And uh, nothing I can do did not work with a, a 17-year-old youngster named Wachuru. Uh, whose last name is withheld because he's a minor, who has brought a lawsuit to upend the law as unconstitutional and found a lawyer willing to represent him for no fee. Um, The interesting thing about the law is um, 
that even though these rules apply to anyone under 20 years of age, uh, they carry no enforcement mechanism. All right. So, so it's sort of a law. Sort No, it's a law in Japan. But the way Japan operates, different than the U.S., is that if you break a law, even though there's no enforcement mechanism, there is heavy social pressure to follow the official suggestions. So it has a certain clout. And you see, we've discussed this, you see this in the wearing of masks and things like that. The Japanese don't have to pass a law that says everybody has to wear a mask. The Japanese just have to pass a guidance that say people wear a mask and everybody wears a mask. Okay. That's the way they roll in Japan. So uh, it does mean something and has a certain clout uh, when you pass a law like this with no enforcement mechanism, particularly since the schools and the parents will pick it up. So uh, this this 17-year-old has brought a lawsuit to challenge it, and uh, he has a, a lawyer who's been successful in recent constitutional challenges, even though they're not often successful. And when they interview some lawyers in Japan as to whether they'll this will be successful, they say, look, it definitely does violate the Constitution to tell people that they can't use video games. Even minors can't use video games above a certain limit. That said, going back to the beginning, because there's no penalty attached to the law, there's a question of whether the, the high courts in Japan are going to take it up. Uh, they're going to say, look, what's the difference? You can ignore it. Uh, so they kind of play it both ways. And, uh, what you'd say in the U.S. law, you'd say, therefore, the person has no standing to challenge. The interesting thing about, we'll see how it goes legally, and maybe it's not important how the legal stuff goes, but, uh, as far as Wachoru is concerned, um, he's following the rules, even now. I mean, he's, he's against it, and he's challenging it, but he very much is in the category of those who feel he has to follow the guidance of the elected authorities. So he, but don't he, you think he's when he's 18 and he realizes 20, they're, he's 20. 20 now? No, no. When he's 20, you're not majority in Japan until you're 20. No, but uh, I, I'm just saying, you know, after he's been all this and he kind of realizes there's no enforcement, he might just say, what the heck? I think he knows there's no enforcement. I think the Japanese culture is such that uh, he people can't, follow the letter of the law. He won't break out of it. Yeah. So uh, we'll see. But you're right. It's every mother's dream. And uh, there it is. They're living the life in Japan. Uh, It just shows how cultures are different. And they could actually have such a law in Japan and and finesse it in that way and change behavior. Uh, Okay. So you had something. Right. I have an obituary for Thomas Freeman, who is one of my new heroes. Uh, Clearly, I'm late to the party here. He died at age 100, and uh, he is famous for being uh, the um, coach of the award-winning debate team at Texas Southern University, and uh, he was a remarkable man. I mean, he started preaching at the age of about nine, even though he was petrified with fear uh, and just kept doing it, and somehow became this great self-taught speaker. Um, He grows up, uh, his father's a peddler, a vegetable grower. He grows, you know, growing vegetables with his father. He ends up uh, getting an education um, and uh, decides he wants to be a preacher, and he goes to a theological seminary um, right after it has uh, been integrated in Massachusetts and ends up graduating the top student in the class. Um, He had um, some very famous students, some very 
great speakers, including Martin Luther King Jr. Okay. No matter what you think of Martin Luther King Jr., there's no question of him as an orator. Uh, and he learned this at uh, Thomas Freeman's knee. Also, another great speaker, Barbara Jordan, uh, the uh, congresswoman from Texas. Uh, you know, um, what a great speaker. Uh, and so he, um, he had a number of theories uh, about uh, life, about um, uh, um, speaking as well. He taught his students to enunciate, regulate your tonal quality, pace your speech, use your breath and emotion so that when you speak, your words come alive. The um, team motto for his debate teams was what we do, we do well. What we don't do well, we don't do at all. Okay. Yeah. That so was he was, and, and, and he was, he was more than just a speaker. I mean, he taught religion. He taught, uh, right. he starts out teaching philosophy and uh, he sets up a debate as part of the philosophy course to teach uh, an example in logic. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, um, it's the school uh, that says to him, hey, you know, maybe you should uh, start a debate team for us. Uh, so really remarkable, fascinating man, took uh, his students abroad, um, you know, really uh, uh, mentored them in many, many ways. And, you know, as a, as a teacher, you know, uh, I'm just very uh, yeah, no, I was, envious I was of his too. skills. I, I, I spotted that article, too. I mean, I... Uh, and and he taught a variety of places. Oh, he grew up in Richmond, uh, Virginia, yeah. um, which is interesting to me, too. And um, I just uh, hope, uh, you know, wow, uh, what an example to live to 100 mm -hmm. and have that full a life and be uh, quite that, um, I don't know, influential... Uh, in your teaching. Well, I don't have as impressive a, an obituary here, but in some ways, well, it's only Harry Glickman. I don't want to put him down. He lived to be 96. And um, he uh, was a great supporter of Portland. Uh, in particular, he was the guy who brought the Portland basketball, the Portland Trailblazers of the NBA to Portland. But it's interesting how life works in the circuitous route because Portland was not an obvious place to have an NBA team, and you would need somebody who was dedicated to the cause. This guy was dedicated to Portland, but the truth is he was involved more than anything in entertainment promoting, and that's what he did for a living. Uh, he promoted concerts, as they note in the Times, but he soured on the experience of working with high-profile entertainers after Judy Garland canceled a couple of tour stops at the last minute. Mr. Glickman said, she made a sports fan out of me. <laughs> and because of Judy Garland, uh, the Portland Trailblazers came into being in Portland and won a championship. So there you go. All right. Thank you, Judy. That Portland has Judy to thank. Um, so here on uh, ending on a little bit of a, a sad note, um, or at least a bittersweet note, uh, there was a, um, an article in the New York Times about Rebecca Luker, Broadway soprano. And uh, she was um, about to uh, put on a benefit for ALS. She was actually diagnosed with ALS, what we call Lou Gehrig's disease, mm -hmm. um, uh, just at the end of last year. Yeah, and, and, and she's, uh, she's a great soprano. She's always been a great soprano. We've seen her in stuff. 
some things less successful than others. We saw in the one with uh, Steve Bogartis at McCarter, which we didn't love so much. Do you remember that? Two right, that was just a concert. Right. But, but we saw a subliminal um, performance of hers in The Boys of Syracuse. You don't mean subliminal. You mean sublime. Yeah. I probably. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Sublime. Yeah, all right. Okay. But yeah. Um, and uh, sorry about that. Uh, and... Um, it was I had forgotten a, a number right. of years She's, ago. Right, right. She in was fact, in that it was trio, about right. yeah. I think it was like 1997 yeah, or something like that. Classic, a long time ago. Classic encore performances. And of, uh, uh, the supper. song was "Sing for, for Your supper. supper." Right, I forgot. Yeah. And uh, it's just one of those. So it was a trio, mm-hmm. and uh, there are moments in the encore's performances. It is not even necessarily the whole musical right. is a success. But sometimes you have a sublime moment of music, yeah. and that's exactly what this was. Right. It's not, you know, it's a song I don't even care about, but these three women singing together had such a chemistry. Right. Um, no, I remember it. Such a musical chemistry that it just took you out of yourself. This is what we miss, isn't it? This is what we miss. Uh, yeah. Spontaneous moments like that. I've listened to the, the recording that they have of it, it uh, doesn't make near the impact that that moment in my seat in the theater mm-hmm. made. And, uh, you know, no performance uh, on there, the screen you know, is it going is to funny. do that. I, it's, uh, it's, there are many, many encore performances by now. And uh, it's just one song in a show, which was good, but not great. But when they did that, uh, it was encore after encore. When you walk around the theater at city center uh as you make your way to the men's room let's say and they have posters and pictures or something there's a huge picture of the three of them singing that song sing for, uh, sing for that was just just a yeah. great moment and she's and been in music man and stuff like that she's oh, one, she's one of the leading broadway singers in many history. many yeah. many things yeah. um and uh so beautiful voice and now she is uh, losing her ability to she's lost her ability to walk She's still able to sing to some extent, although because singing depends on being able to hold yourself and have control of your diaphragm, her singing has changed somewhat. Uh, What I also noticed uh, sniffing around about her uh, today was um, not only does she have ALS, her husband, Danny Bernstein, had COVID-19. COVID-19, and she did as well. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, at least it, she had all the symptoms, and uh, yeah, Danny Bernstein's like, been in a zillion things. He's in Moulin Rouge now, or he was. Yeah, and they said course. he and uh, um, a bunch of cast members from oh, really? that mm-hmm. came down with COVID nineteen. Uh, so anyway, uh, part of this article was uh, you know asking her about uh, you know what what is she going through, how is she feeling, um, what does um, you know what does she sound like? She says I don't sound the way I used to, but my husband says I sound beautiful. And uh, she, you know, sings as, you know, in part to give herself uh, hope. Um, is there anything you wanted to add? No, I mean, it's it, it's interview, if you can pick it up in the Times, it, you could read the whole thing. I mean... It's uh, very touching. And not surprisingly, she says, uh, the, um, you know, one of the things this disease has taught her is to just... Value simple good health right. and uh, being able to just uh, get around and walk. 
yeah. she would never take for granted again. Yeah, she does even make the point that they said, has this been harder on you mentally or physically? And she replies, uh, mentally. Mentally, yeah. because uh, you can slip into some real dark places. But in any event, so, so yeah, so she was part of the a benefit for the development of procetine, or procetin. I don't know how to pronounce it. Um, a promising experimental drug that rescues motor neurons in ALS right. patients. I'm, I'm so sure you, you we wish her luck with that. We we have really. Uh, I'm sure you can actually, find that if you want to donate uh, on the web somewhere. Yeah. Probably not difficult. Um, Rebecca Luker. Uh, okay. So that's all we have this Father's Day? Yes, I understand the kids are making dinner. I didn't know that. Is yeah. that right? Yeah, all right. I'm well, off the hook. We're hoping for the best. All right, so uh, we'll this is Tamsin Granger. And Dan Abuhop. And we'll see you next week.